Welcome to Social Fishtensing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. This is our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on coastal fisheries and fishing communities. People still have this idea in their head that fishermen, you know, have their yellow hats and the yellow slickers and maybe the pipe in their mouth. The amount of gear that would have been in those storage sheds that went up into flames is just incredible. If you want to see an abject failure of proper waterfront management, just look at the city of Toronto. Hello, I'm your co-host, Philip Loring. I'm joined by... Hannah Harrison. And I'm Emily D'Souza. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. This week, we're visiting a place you've probably been before. The waterfront. Waterfronts can have many names, harbors, marinas, wharfs, but the key factor is that these waterfronts are working. That is, they remain a place where the fishing industry carries out some of its most essential tasks. Working waterfronts don't have just one single definition, but in general, you can think about working waterfronts as the places where fishermen and other types of marine commercial activities meet up with the land. In other words, docks, boatyards, wharfs, and all of the infrastructure and people whose work is connected to those places. This can include important services too, like places to dock your boat, buy fuel, or even cranes to load and unload heavy fishing gear. Now, you might think, well, aren't all waterfronts working in one way or another? Waterfronts are very popular places for tourism, sure, but waterfronts that serve commercial purposes are actually sometimes threatened by tourism, and increasingly, city waterfronts are being impacted by high rates of gentrification and coastal grabbing, where interests outside of the community take over coastal spaces for the purposes of investment and development. To get a better sense of working waterfronts and the challenges that they face today, we are speaking this week with four people familiar with working waterfronts across North America, including Newfoundland, Maine, the Great Lakes, and British Columbia. First, we spoke with Monique Coombs, who was the director of marine programs at the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. She talked about how working waterfronts are actually inclusive of all parts of the supply chain that brings marine products to our plates. Thinking about the working waterfront for the commercial fishing industry, it's sort of like considering um, the the system of boat to plate for fish um, and all of the aspects that are involved in that. The thing that um, I don't think this is unique to Maine is um, we have a lot of different kinds of working waterfront when speaking specifically about the commercial fishing industry. So we have the larger wharfs that maybe um, a dealer is um, on the wharf and they're buying, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of lobster over the wharf. They work with, you know, 40 boats, um, something like that. And then we have um, what we started calling discrete working waterfronts, which are the much smaller wharfs that pepper the coast of Maine that are owned or operated by maybe two or three fishermen. They're usually um, some of the oldest wharfs in the communities. Um, They're usually used mostly for gear storage, more so than access, but they're extremely important because they literally make up the landscape um, that you know designates the community as a fishing community, as well as you know take some of the pressure off some of the larger wharfs, um, and so that fishermen are a little bit more spread out. We do not want five wharfs on the coast of Maine that you know operate all of our fishing. We want 
a variety of wharf so that fishermen do have um, places to store their gear. They do have a place to park when they need to go fishing um, or work on their boat. And that's especially important to think about when you're thinking about um, climate change in the working waterfront because with sea level rise um, and even development opportunities for fishermen to have a majority of their business on the water is getting harder and harder. Even getting like two miles inland from the coast, the knowledge, education, and understanding of fishing and seafood starts to diminish. And so if you're trying to advocate um, for resources, for funding, to try to um, fight for an access or some conservation of a working waterfront, it gets really hard because it's it doesn't necessarily resonate with people as deeply as it does for people that are on the coast. And so that's that's a smaller population. Now the disconnect that Monique is talking about is important because working waterfronts need public support to exist. There really is a disconnect um, between consumers and inland residents and then seafood working waterfront and and fishing and so I think it's really important you know podcasts like this I think will will help um, start to share that story with more people and hopefully help um, not just conserve the working waterfront but protect the oceans um, and this iconic industry that provides healthy fresh amazing seafood um, that has a a lower carbon footprint than a lot of other uh, land-based protein. Monique also talked about public perceptions of fishermen and how sometimes what we imagine fisheries to be might not always actually be the reality of the industry. I think people still have this idea in their head that fishermen, you know, have their the yellow hats and the yellow slickers and maybe the pipe in their mouth and they're these salty characters and fishermen are, are wonderful people, but fishing is a job, you know, and, and it's, it's their way of life. And, you know, they wake up super early in the morning. My husband gets up at like three to four, depending on what he's fishing for and where, um, you know, he heads out to his boat. They got to put bait on the boat. He's got bright lights on his boat. Um, they're grumpy, you know, it's early in the morning, they're either, you know, grunting, swearing, trying to yell at each other to communicate different things, right? Like the realities of it. But, and we heard this argument when we were doing some work in Portland about the working waterfront is people were like, well, the people in the hotel are going to love to see the fishermen. And we're like, well, maybe, but probably not. Like, it's not always romantic. It is hard work. It's salty work. And sometimes it's stinky and it's loud and, you know, that it's not this like romanticized version of a guy heading out on the water at sunset and, you know, everything's perfect. That's just not, not how it is. So what can be done to protect working waterfronts and educate those who live along the coast about the importance of access to waterfronts for fisheries? To start answering that question, Monique shared with us some of the programs in place in Maine. We have something called the Working Waterfront Access Protection Program. Um, It's funding through um, a government-based program called the Land for Maine's Future um, that provides funding uh, for conservation of properties in forestry, agriculture, and commercial fishing. And that is um, something that working waterfront businesses can apply for. Um, It puts the property um, in a trust with the Department of Marine Resources and basically says this is going to be working waterfront forever. 
it's an amazing program, but one of the things that we have found and the, and the Department of Marine Resources is aware of is that it is not a one-size-fits-all program. One of the things that I think is a really interesting prospect um, that came up in a report about uh, Cundy's Harbor is the right to farm ordinance that exists in some communities in Maine, which basically says farming or farms have a right to stink and operate their businesses in a way that might not be, you know, the most like amenable to, to new residents or, or people. And, you know, the, the person that did this report, I apologize, I can't think of his name right now, said, you know, perhaps something like a right to fish ordinance would be appropriate in a lot of coastal communities. And, you know, it's nothing that's legally binding. It's nothing that puts strict regulations in place, but it's definitely a marker in a community that says fishing and the working waterfront is important to our community. And that means that there are certain sights, sounds, and smells that come along with that industry and they're okay. These sorts of protections to maintain the access and character of important fishing communities and infrastructure may be more important now than ever, as COVID-19 has brought new changes to the way people view coastal areas. If we have hotels and um, McMansions, if you will, popping up, then it becomes a little bit more difficult for fishermen to afford living by the water, which um, right now is... Uh, for lack of a better expression, sort of all the rage, right? Everybody wants to have a summer home in Maine and vacation land. And that's actually been becoming or is an impact of COVID is our home sales in Maine are increasing and homes are going very quickly because as people recognize that they can work from home, uh, yeah, work from home, work virtually and places like Maine have low numbers, uh, some of the best restaurants in the country, it's really becoming this idyllic place to live, which is, you know, awesome. We need a workforce in Maine, so that's great. But we also have all of these um, heritage industries, including fishing, that require, you know, sort of coastal access and historically are within these communities that would be considered fishing communities or working waterfront communities. So there's a balance of trying to maintain that history, heritage, and industry while also allowing some room for for progress. So with that overview of working waterfronts in mind, let's now visit a few fishing folks we've previously featured on the show and see how these issues are playing out in their fisheries. Our first stop is with Melissa Collier, who you may remember, along with her husband, Joel, owns West Coast Wild Scallops in British Columbia. Melissa and I talked about the importance of waterfront access for fishermen and having the appropriate infrastructure in place to safely move fishing gear and change over their boats in between fishing seasons. Yeah, so I mean, there's definitely a lot of challenges with with trying to manage like working spaces and having um, spaces where guys can work because I mean there's a lot of maintenance and a lot of work and a lot of back and forth with your boat like our boat makes these massive changes in between our fisheries and we mm-hmm. have these huge chunks of gear that have to come on and off and we are up in Campbell River mm-hmm. and up until the last I think year or two we never had a drive down dock so that means that you're accessing um the dock, like to get to the wharf and to get to your to your boat, you're having to go down these little fingers. So you're having to handball all your gear down, 
which can be really challenging. And then it, and it makes the hoist that much more busy because if your equipment's too big for you to hand bomb down, but it's something that you could have easily driven up to your boat, you still have to use the hoist to be able to get it onto your boat because it's the only place that you can actually bring your boat right up to where your vehicle will be. Um, so there's that challenge. And luckily now that we have a drive down dock, it makes it way easier. But unfortunately our drive down dock is also still very, very busy. Um, and some people kind of abuse it in a way. Like it's meant to be a place where you come, you bring your boat, you load up and you go. Um, or even like if you're getting work done that you need truck access. So like, you know, there's a fisherman recently that did a bunch of refrigeration work on his boat. So obviously he was down at the drive down dock because the refrigeration guys can then access his vessel. Um, but there are some people that unfortunately abuse that situation and they just leave their boats there all the time. And then it plugs up the whole dock and then it's really hard to get in and out to load up everything and, and access that facility. Uh, it is really nice though with the drive down dock because so with our trolling gear, our poles, we have to lower our poles to replace the lines um, along our poles. And before the only place that we could do that is we'd have to go find a log boom somewhere and then tie up against the log boom and then walk along the log boom to replace our, our, our lines. Um, where now with the drive down dock, you can just park at the end of the drive down dock and lower your poles and be right on the drive down dock replacing it. It's way safer. Melissa also highlighted what goes on behind the scenes to harvest seafood and the big role that accessible waterfronts play in getting seafood out of the ocean and onto the plates of consumers. There's a lot of behind the scenes and that's like, I definitely feel for the folks out in San Francisco with that fire down on the pier because, you know, I'm sitting here telling you about all this different gear that has to go on and off your vessel. Well, you have to put it somewhere when you're not using it. I mean, for example, during before prawn season, we have, you get 300 traps for each license and then you take 50 spare traps so in case you lose one you have a spare trap um we have property here in courtney so we have space to store it but there are some folks especially in like a city that don't and they have to rely on these storage facilities and the amount of gear that would have been in those storage sheds that went up into flames is just incredible Mm -hmm. and not easy to replace so I, I, I feel for people because like, I mean, again, just the number of traps and rope that we have for prawns alone is incredible. Melissa and I also talked about the importance of dockside infrastructure and accessible waterfronts for selling seafood. Over the course of the last few months, we've spoken to lots of folks who've pivoted to a direct-to-consumer sales model as restaurants and export markets have closed during COVID-19. This has not been an easy shift for all as having a place to sell fish is not available to everyone, including many fishermen in British Columbia. So the only other thing I can think of too about working waterfronts is is, um, space for sales as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've listened to a lot of you guys' podcasts and talking about, you know, we've even talked about how different it is in different places um, coming into Vancouver, for instance. There's lots of places there and availability and access to people to sell off the dock. Mm-hmm. And, and it benefits a lot of people. I even know some folks up here that go down to Vancouver, down to the Steveson Wharf to do dock sales because mm. it's a great conglomerate. It's a good setup and it's, there's a lot of people coming through and people who recognize that there are fishermen selling off the docks. So um, having that infrastructure makes a big difference. Um, with where here, like in our kind of towns, you have to have your own email lists and you kind of have to do your own thing and set up your own 
interest and you you can't just come and sit on the dock and put a sign up and maybe someone will come by. You might, but you're not going to do well. This week, we also spoke again to Anthony Cobb of Fogo Island Fish in Newfoundland. During our conversation, Anthony reminded us how vital coastal communities are to Canada and how much of our population is dependent on robust and accessible working waterfronts. So I think when you, you know, when you, it's kind of staggering really to think about how many Canadians live in coastal communities and how dependent they are on, you know, the resources, the water resources, the the ocean resources, fish. I think something like 240,000 kilometers of coastline and something akin to 7 million people, you know, live in coastal communities. And the only province that doesn't have a coast, right, is Alberta. So if you think about how many people live in coastal communities, I mean, and how many communities there are, uh, and again, depending on your source, that, you know, depending on how you count, um, you know, that could be up to a thousand communities. And also, think, if we think about the Great Lakes as, you know, kind of a freshwater ocean, mm-hmm. um, and you, if you consider the population that's included in those towns, that by definition means places like Toronto and Montreal are coastal towns. By the time you add those populations to our coastal populations, like this is one of those things. Like our so if it's our saltwater ocean, if it's our permit, if it's our freshwater ocean, if we look at it that way, mm-hmm. then there'd be very few people in the country that didn't live on the ocean. I mean, you know, if you want to see a, an abject failure of water, proper waterfront management, just look at the city of Toronto. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's dreadful, uh, Toronto's waterfront. And, you know, it was, it is, it, it remains a working port, all, albeit, you know, diminished from its, its heights, but a tremendous amount of product, you know, arrives in Toronto by ship. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, you know, these issues are, I think are not unique to, you know, places like Fogo Island. I think these are, you know, you look at Vancouver's issues with their waterfront and that's a massive undertaking and massive um, situation and, you know, how they uh, try and balance, you know, uh, providing for, you know, small fishing boats that still fish uh, out of Vancouver. What the developers want to do is to have every square meter of, of land waterfront available to them to build more condos. Uh, so, you know, that, that those tensions are, you know, we're well down the road of, of those tensions and, and we don't always make good decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, St. John's, you know, look at the other coast, you look at St. John's, downtown St. John's, there, the waterfront in St. John's is an abject failure by any measure. Um, and, and the interesting thing to me about it is everybody agrees. <laughs> and yet, and the city of St. John's keeps approving these ridiculous projects that they put on the waterfront. Um, yeah, it keeps going. Anthony's comments about the Great Lakes are especially appropriate, as a few weeks ago, we caught up again with Carson Miner, a fisherman working at the eastern end of Lake Erie. You might remember Carson from episode five, where he talked about his long-standing family fishery. Recently, though, the miners have seen some concerning changes at their home port of Port Colborne, Ontario. For the last 70 years, uh, like my family, my grandfather started our business. Uh, when we've been harvesting fish in Port Colborne, 
we it Port Colburn is a harbor that has higher walls and is set up for the Lakers to come in and tie up and unload. But we've always came in um, to an area where we can drive our vehicles to and and fish trucks and load the fish on. So we we load the fish there um, onto the vehicles. We take the fish away and then we move our boats up to our spots where we dock them overnight. But the one day we came in uh, a month or so ago and there was construction everywhere. Uh, they are building, they're gating off the whole area where we unload the fish, um, fixing up the docks for a cruise ship. So the construction people came over and said that we'll let you out today, but you're not allowed coming back again. So we were kind of told that just to get out of town that day. Uh, with no other options provided to unload our fish. So we were forced to leave the next uh, morning to a different harbor and work from there. So we contacted the city and uh, they said they would try to work with us to find a, a place for us to unload our fish, but they haven't really presented any options yet or anything that would work. Uh, so right now we haven't been able to work out of that harbor and it's really affected our fishings we haven't been able to go to the areas that we we harvest most of our fish from. So we're kind of waiting around right now, trying to find an area in that harbor that uh, we're allowed to use and will work because the options they've kind of mentioned uh, aren't really suitable. So we have a, uh, like a box that we place our, like our declarations of our catch in. Mm -hmm and for the MNR to access. And it's actually in the construction zone right now, gated off. So um, I think tomorrow they're gonna come down and we're gonna go get the box and place it somewhere where we can put our declarations in. And then, I don't know, I think I found a couple of places that maybe we can get our fish off the boat. There's room to tie up the boat, like we can tie the boats, but um, the problem is it's like a big boardwalk there, right? And I don't know, it's, it's not safe to be like using a crane and loading fish on a boardwalk really. Now you might wonder here why Carson and his family can't fish out of a nearby port such as Port Maitland, which is just a 30-minute car ride down the coast from Port Colborne. Well, the answer lies in the nature of travel by boat and the inherent dangers of fishing, particularly the weather. What's nice about Port Colborne, like going out of there, is you access the fishing grounds. They're very close. So days that it's really windy, we're able to slip out, uh, work our gear, and then slip back in the harbor to get some protection so we're not out in the weather for very long where if we want to run down to the grounds where we, we harvest most of our fish from Port Maitland it takes a long time so you might be about three hours like just running there to get your nets and then three hours to run back so if it's too windy it's too difficult it's maybe not safe for us to do so where when we're out of Port Colburn and uh, it's not very far say the weather is going to come later in the afternoon or something, well, then we can take those risks and slip out, grab our gear, and then run back. Where, you know, if, if it's blowing 25, 30 knots and you have to run back, which is usually a three-hour run, head two, it could take twice as long to do. You could be like six hours coming back. Now you're putting yourself in danger too. Like, what if you break down? Like, what's going to happen, right? Yeah, it's just been really, really difficult. So we're missing days. Like, so today we didn't, we didn't fish because they were calling for about 25 knots of wind. So it wasn't worth it for us to try and do anything at a Port Maitland, where if I could have went into Port Colbert and loaded my fish, I would have harvested fish today. And, and that's money we won't get back. 
So at the time of this recording, the issue of where Carson and his family can unload their fish safely remains unresolved. The miners are reaching out to local leadership to see if a resolution can be found, but as Carson explained, not having a reasonable place to unload fish isn't a tenable solution in the long term. If we can't fish out of Port Colburn, then, you know, like if, if I have to do all my work out of Port Maitland, it just makes everything much more difficult. Um, I would expect smaller yields or I would just have to put in a lot more effort. So it would just make more sense for me really just to move our whole operation to, to Port Stanley and just work from there, like a harbor that is set up for fishing that welcomes it and, uh, and we can just run our business out of that, that area, it would be more successful than doing it out of Port Malin, which is too bad because like we've fished out of Port Colburn for generations. And, uh, you know, we have a store there that sells fish and allows people access to those fish. So will that be effective too? If we can't fish her there, I would expect that. Before we go, let me leave you with a final thought. Carson's story really gets to the heart of why working waterfronts matter so much. They are the appropriate space and access to perform the basic functions of a fishery that not only supports a fisherman's livelihood, but also connects we, the consumers, to the resource itself. Without working waterfronts, there simply won't be fish on our plates. Thanks for joining us. If you're interested in learning more about the issue of coastal grabbing, see the description of our episode for some resources. Social Fishdancing is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America and beyond for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including fishermen, Visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we definitely hope that you will, send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, and the Miopar Network. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today we heard from Monique Coombs, Melissa Collier, Anthony Cobb, and Carson Miner. You're listening to Move Out by David Suzuki, available for free on Bandcamp. See you next time. <laughs>